Last week we looked at a moment in the history of God's people, the beginning of the church, when the church of Jesus sort of explodes onto the scene, right? Acts chapter 2 is this amazing moment, a a moment of Holy Spirit-empowered transformation, uh, and just the Holy Spirit of God doing what God did in the beginning, bringing something to existence, bringing something to life where there was nothing before. Uh, It's just a beautiful moment, a group of 12 people empowered by the Holy Spirit, preaching to a crowd that had gathered because of miraculous demonstrations of God's power, gives birth to a community of people that gave themselves fully, that devoted themselves. We talked about that last week. If you missed last week, the podcast is there. I'd encourage you to listen to it just because I think that's like a picture of our life together as a church that I really want to lean into over the next season of our life. But a people who devoted themselves wholly to life with God and life with each other. Like full throttle, that's what we're here for, right? We talked last week about that community, about its commitment to life together in the way of Jesus. Their rugged commitment to walking together, to showing up for one another, despite the difficulties they knew that would come their way, because they had experienced God's grace moving toward them, establishing them into something that had never existed before around the person of Jesus, making them part of a family. And all of it was worth it, come what may. All right, that's the, that's the foundational vision for the church of Jesus. In that community, the church, we believe at this church that that is the vehicle for, for formation in the way of Jesus. That that is the vehicle, for, that the Holy Spirit of God is the engine of transformation and the church is the vehicle, right, that moves us toward Christ-likeness. And I don't think, I'm just going to, I'm going to name it. I don't think, this is an interesting moment we live in culturally and within Christian faith and all of that. It's always an interesting moment, I guess. But I don't think we get there. I don't think we get where we want to go when it comes to being formed in the ways of Jesus, I don't, get, I don't think we can get to where we were meant to be, to life abundantly, without it. I don't think we can. I don't think we can get to spiritual formation apart from the body of Christ and our membership in it. And as hard as that may be at times, right, as inconvenient as that may be at times, as annoying as community and life together can be sometimes, or as slow as the transformation ours or the transformation we want to see God do with someone else, right, seems at times or as hard-headed as we can be or as mean as we can be or as unlike Jesus as we all can be if we're honest with ourselves. It's hard. And it's hard to see sometimes in the day-to-day of our life together. It seems elusive, like we want it, we can't grab it, we had it, it slips through our fingers, community was great, and then these people kept, kept coming, kept bringing their junk, and now it's not as great as it was in the first night because the best night of community is the first night because we're all romantics, Right? Six months in, it's different. Or our group isn't as close, or the experience of the Holy Spirit isn't as deep as we want it to be when it feels sometimes more like the world in here than it does out there. It's hard, it's daunting, it isn't always easy. But what happens, I believe, in our shared life together is worth it. And the early church believed that it was worth it, and they devoted themselves to life together. And I think all that is, is like... Beautiful to say in a name, but we see an example in our text today that I think bears that out, right? I don't think we get this moment in our text today, Acts chapter 7, if we don't have that shared experience of life together in the church. So Acts chapter 7, if you have your Bibles, it tells the story of a man named Stephen. It tells part of his story, at least. Stephen was a man whose life had been caught up in the way of Jesus. One of those who I believe was probably there in Acts chapter 2 probably witnessed it, and even if he didn't, he came on the scene pretty quickly to this thing called the church because it hadn't existed very long by the time Acts chapter 7 rolls around. He loved the church. He had devoted himself to this thing called the church and Jesus' vision for our shared lives together. He was named a deacon of the first church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6. A deacon means someone who serves the body, right, who lives into the vision of the church. He's serving this church because of his love for God's people and his desire to see that community flourish 
and live into its calling. Right? So he serves it. He says, like, and then this happens. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 8. We're going to kind of read through and talk about it as we go this afternoon. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among them. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom and the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So this is the moment, right? Do you remember that promise? Uh, we haven't talked about it a lot. This, isn't, this is kind of a tangent. But do you remember that promise that Jesus gave to his followers? Luke says it, the author of Luke in Acts, he says in Luke chapter 12 that Jesus told his people not to worry about moments like these. Moments of mission, moments when the kingdom of God breaks into the difficult and the messy and the reality of our moment when he says that Jesus said, the Holy Spirit of God will give you words to say at the moment that you need them. And this is what like, we see Stephen doing, right? I just want to name it. That was terrifying. Uh, I just want to name it, right? Like we as students of the way of Jesus, we see a promise of Jesus come to fulfillment. We need to name it and see it, right? That Jesus said, hey, don't worry about it. Like this Holy Spirit of God will give you the words to say. And now um, this this moment, right, in Stephen's life bears that out, that he is like, he's called into bearing witness, right, to what God is doing. And those who are opposing, those who are standing against the way of Jesus, they can't even stand up to him, right, because of the wisdom of the Spirit in that moment, right? Verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And that is a big deal. That is a big deal. Sorry, this is chapter 6. I had the wrong, I had the wrong um, verses there. That's my bad. Um, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against, his holy place, against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So I just want us to name what's happening here in this moment, right? They've seen these opponents of the early church. They've seen Stephen serving the church. They've heard him speak about what God is doing, empowered by the Holy Spirit, speaking words of life and hope and beauty and a future. The good news of the kingdom of God. And as a response, this is just what's happening, right, in Stephen's life. As a response, they recruit some people to lie about him. I don't know how your week went. They recruit some people to lie about him. They, they recruit some people to make things up, to misrepresent his words and his actions. And they begin to form a coalition against him and the church. They falsely accuse him. They drag him into court. And they get people to lie, not just out there in the street about him, but in the court about what's happening as well. They falsely accuse him. They misrepresent his words. They call into question his character. And they assassinate his reputation. And I want you to think, like, how would you respond to that if that were you? I've been thinking about it like all week. How would you respond if this is you, if this is your experience? How would you respond in, in, the, front of, in the face of that reality? Like all week I've been thinking, I mean, I, I'm a member of Jesus' church just like Stephen. I've experienced God's faithfulness. I've seen the miraculous. I've walked with Jesus' as apprentice for most of my life. And the question that I've been wrestling with all week is like, how would I respond in that moment? With all being equal, like where has my formation in the way of Jesus led me? 
And I'll be honest, this moment is like nightmare fuel for me. To be falsely accused. Like I spend a non-zero amount of time, y'all are about to see into like the deepest places of my heart. I spend a non-zero amount of time in defending myself out loud in my car at times from accusations like these that haven't even been made about me yet. Anybody else there? Like, I was like, I, like, what if they said this about like, well, this is what I would say, right? And I'm like, gr- I'm, a, I'm a great litigator in the front seat of my car, right? <laughs> I'm amazing. I should have been a lawyer. I don't know. Like, just, prepare, just to be prepared just in case someone were to say something or make up something about me. The crazier, the better, right? Like, or what if somebody tried to misrepresent me? What would I say? Or God forbid, what if somebody actually just called me on my stuff one time? Like, what would I say? How would I defend myself? I guess... Maybe I'm the only neurotic one here this afternoon. I don't know. But, but how would you respond in the face of someone lying about you? Or in the face of someone threatening your life or your lifestyle? Like, and as we think about that, I just want us to hold in tension the reality that Stephen's experiencing in the promises of Jesus and the kind of people that God has promised to make us if we will follow him into his kingdom. I don't think it's that kind of person who is having a nervous breakdown in the front seat of their car driving to work just about what could happen, right? Like, I think there's more to life than that. There's more on offer. And I think transformation and formation reveals itself, I believe, in moments like this one that Stephen finds himself in. Verse 15, chapter 6. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So they bring him to court. They bring him in front of the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the Jewish people. And these people gather around him and his accusers there, and they look at him, and they don't see a man in that moment thinking about how you would react. They don't see a man possessed by anger. They don't see a man enslaved to fear. They don't see a man looking for revenge or a man who's out of control with rage. They didn't see a man who was shrinking back or hiding from the uncomfortable. No, Luke says they saw a man with the face of an angel. They're like, cool, we're in Honestly, what's that even mean? Like the face of an angel? Like, it means, I think, that they saw on his face the face of one who'd been in the presence of Jesus to the degree that Jesus himself had been formed in Stephen in this moment for this moment. See, when Moses had been in God's presence, do you remember how the Old Testament talks about Moses' experience? That his face reflected God's glory. When Jesus himself is transfigured, Right? His identity as Messiah of Israel, of God himself, is revealed to his disciples on the mountain. Luke says, the same author who's writing these words, says that, that the appearance of Jesus is what was transformed. His face. In the transfiguration, Jesus' face is transformed into the glory of God. And now, all the formation in Stephen's life as Jesus' apprentice is seen clearly on his face in this difficult moment. And in this difficult moment, what radiates off of him is the glory of God. (laughs) His training, his apprenticeship, it has led him to this moment. And in this moment, the promises of Jesus to be with him, to work in him and through him for God's glory can be seen and reflected on his face. There's a lot of like scholarly articles being written right now about the ability of people to be a non-anxious presence in the moment of an anxious situation, both in the church and external to the church. I did a degree in conflict management one time 40 years ago, it feels like. And that was the whole degree, basically. Just don't be anxious when everybody else is. That's how you resolve conflict. And I go, this is the master's degree in conflict management. Like, like you want to be a non-anxious president, just have the glory of God radiating on your face as people are inquiring about what you've done and they're sentencing you to death. Like, I want to be that kind of non-anxious presence. 
verse 54. We're going to jump ahead. And now I think, now we are indeed in, um, in the place we should be. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, so, so Stephen then, his face made like, like an angel, right? He begins to preach to them of great courage and boldness. And he preaches this amazing sermon to the Jewish leaders, to the powers that be. And then this happens, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, heard that what he had been preaching, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, verse 56. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. That's the end of the story that we're going to be reading today. And I go, the question for me that I've been asking all week is, like, do you want to know how you've been formed? Pay attention to what comes out of you in the most difficult and painful and stressful moments of your life. Like, if we're asking the question, like, how have I been formed? Like, how has this Jesus thing made a difference? Has it made a difference? Pay attention to what comes out of you in the most difficult and painful and stressful and awkward moments of your life. You see, the last words Stephen speaks are the same words that the one that he'd given his life to following spoke in a very similar moment. And think about all of it. They'd lied about him. They'd made things up about him. They'd stirred up a mob against him. They dragged him out of the city. Sound familiar? And they take their coats off and they began to murder him by throwing rocks at him. And what poured out of Stephen's heart in that moment was Jesus. It was Jesus. And in that moment, Stephen got what he'd been waiting for since the moment his heart became fixed on Jesus. No, not, not martyrdom. But since the moment that his life had been caught up in the transforming power of relationship with God, since he'd given himself to loving and serving and living in the community of Jesus called the church, what he'd been waiting for since that moment, he got in the worst, most painful moment as his life was being ripped from him by a savage mob, he looks up and he locks eyes with the one that his heart had come to love. And he sees exactly what he wanted more than anything, the glory of God filling the earth. And he sees it. And in his life, and not just his life, but his death are now connected with the most beautiful thing and the most beautiful being in the universe. And precisely in the moment in which it appears that evil is won again, and it appears that it's useless to try, that the effort isn't worth it, that the way of Jesus just leads to suffering, we are reminded as followers of the way of Jesus that things aren't always as they seem. And that though he is dying, he has found the abundant good life that Jesus has offered him. And I go, that is a tension and a dichotomy and a reality that like, only the mystery of God makes, can make sense of. Though he dies, he has found life. And not just found it, hear this, but lives it into reality for his murderers to see and experience as well. You see, in the New Testament, after the resurrection of Jesus, the imagery is like pretty clear. Hebrews 1 says that in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus' work was finished. 
that sin and death was defeated, dealt with. They are no more. They have no more power. And then after all that, Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. That imagery, that imagery is throughout the New Testament, right? That Jesus is seated in glory next to the Father, right? Because his work is done. That sitting down, it is definitively saying in that cultural moment that there is nothing else to do, that Jesus has done all that is needed. You sit down when the work is done. Peter says something very similar in, in, in the very sermon that brings into existence the church. Remember from Acts chapter 2, the sermon that Peter gives um, on the day of Pentecost? Peter says, that day in Jerusalem on the streets, a sermon that I believe Stephen probably heard, he says that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father and then now he's been seated in glory. That's the reality. He's been exalted and seated. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places, right? That's the reality, that we've been raised, glorified because of Christ, and now we've been seated, the work is done, like your salvation is not in question, like it's good, it's done. The only time in the entirety of the New Testament, on the other side of Jesus' life, death, and life again, on the other side of death, that we see Jesus standing after his ascension to the Father is here now in this moment. Stephen looks up, And he sees Jesus stand to receive him, to welcome him, to honor him, to say to him, I believe as Jesus said in the story that he had told earlier in his life, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in the happiness of your God. That Jesus, to receive Stephen, he stands in honor. And Stephen sees it. He sees the glory of God fill the earth. And if you want to know what exactly it is that we're on about, I just watched the coronation of the king yesterday so I can say what we're on about. That's an English thing. They say that in England, right, Brooks? Confirm, thanks. If you want to know what we're on about when we talk about spiritual formation in the way of Jesus at this church, that's it. That level of formation is what's on the table for us. Nothing less. As ridiculous and improbable and impractical and maybe as stupid as it sounds to you, that's it. You could be stoned to death and in that have the person of Jesus and the love of Jesus pour out of your mouth. And I believe that the church of Jesus is the place where that kind of transformation happens. It's the only place it can happen. See, this moment of discipleship in the life of Stephen is precisely the moment where mission and formation begin to blur and they become one. Sometimes we talk about formation, right? All the things that we're doing to become, to step into the good life, take hold of Jesus' invitation to be formed spiritually. And then we talk about, on the other hand, mission, right? What we do in the world to to demonstrate and declare the goodness of the kingdom of God. Um, That's like a false dichotomy in the New Testament, right? Uh, There is no like formation apart from mission and there's no mission apart from formation. This is the moment in Stephen's life where the formation into Christ's likeness like slams headlong into the mission of God, right? In the moment of like the one you wouldn't choose. Our formation is never just for us. It's never just so that we might have more peace or feel more secure or be more at ease or be kinder or be more fulfilled. Yes, that all comes hand in hand with being formed into the way of Jesus and the person of Jesus in Christ's likeness. That all comes with it, but it's never just for that because the truth is someone is always watching. And in this case, it's a man named Saul. And this man named Saul, he doesn't know it yet as he stands here over Stephen approving of and holding space for the execution and murder of this man, of this Christian. Saul doesn't know it yet, but he's about to have an encounter with the very one that Stephen has been talking about. 
the one whose church Saul has been persecuting, and the one Stephen implores at the end of his life to forgive those who are actively taking his life from him. And after his encounter with the risen Jesus, after giving his life to Jesus and his community, after planting countless churches and preaching in hostile environments and experiencing the miraculous, this man Saul, now named Paul, writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm 95% sure this is 1 Corinthians 15. I don't think I have the chapter wrong. <laughs> it was a typo. should have had a teaching team this week. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. This is what Paul writes. This man who approved of and stood, stood in authority over the execution of Stephen. He says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. He said this in, in verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which is Paul's, which is an amazing way of him saying, like, I don't, if you don't trust me, ask them, like, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Paul says to the church, right, in Corinth, it's true. Like, remember it. Don't forget it. It happened. You can trust that you built your life on it. You've experienced it. Don't give up on it. Don't forget it, right? This is the gospel. These are the things of first importance. Like, don't let go of them. And then he says, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. And I go, I wonder what moment was flashing through his mind when he wrote those words. I persecuted the church of God. I am the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Jesus. Could it have been that the moment we read together today in Acts chapters 6 and 7, could it be that that was the moment, the, man, the moment in which a man named Saul, a man who had ceased to exist, who was reborn after an encounter with Jesus of Nazareth, a moment in which that man gave approving oversight and authority as a follower of Jesus named Stephen was lied about, falsely accused, dragged out of town, and murdered at his feet? Could it have been that moment that he was thinking about? And as he remembered, could it be, as he felt the shame and the guilt well up, could it be that he heard the words of Stephen, his brother in Christ, Stephen, his brother in Christ, resounding in his heart and in his mind, Lord, do not hold his sin against him. Could the words of grace that Paul has experienced be the words that came out of Stephen's mouth as they took his life? Could it be that the only voice Paul ever heard speak the words of Jesus from the cross, Father, forgive them, was not Jesus' voice, but Stephen's voice? Have you ever thought about that? That Paul heard the words of the crucified Jesus, but he didn't hear him from the crucified Jesus. He heard him from a man named Stephen, who had given his life to becoming like the crucified Jesus. Now Paul writes and he says, if you want to know the power of God's work and what it could be in you, why it's worth pursuing it together to the end, until all of us have been consumed and transformed by the grace-filled love of Jesus. This is why Paul says, I'm unworthy, I am. But a man who I killed looked me in the eyes, and instead of condemnation and hate and revenge, he spoke words of forgiveness and life and hope and peace. He did what Jesus did, and it changed everything. I don't know if that's how... 
Paul was thinking, I'm going to ask him when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Like a list of questions I have for biblical people, that's what I'm going to ask him. Like, did you think it was... See, an encounter with Jesus and then an encounter with someone who had been so formed into the way of Jesus that interacting with him brought about the same level of forgiveness and grace and mercy that interacting with Jesus himself would have brought around captivated Paul's heart and changed his life, I believe. In that trajectory of Paul's life, all of the hardships he endured, all the grace he extended, all the mercy he showed, all the truth he spoke, it led him to a moment later on in which he writes to a church that had lost its way a family that had lost its mission, an institution that had lost from sight the goal to be a place of formation in the way of Jesus so that they themselves might participate in the mission of Jesus. He writes to a church that found itself in that moment in Galatians chapter 4, and he says, My dear children, Paul writing to this church, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It's a weird thing to write to a group of people. Eugene Peterson says it this way, or he interprets it this way in the message. He says, Paul says, do you know how I feel right now? And how I will feel until Christ's life becomes visible in your lives? I feel like a mother in the pain of childbirth. I have no idea what that feels like. But Paul says, the goal of the family of God is to see the life of Christ become visible in each one of our lives as members of that family. In increasing measure. In increasing levels of glory. You see, there was a man, his name was Stephen, and though he killed him, he forgave us. And that because there was a man named Jesus, and though we killed him, he forgave us. Because of that, Paul says, I will do whatever it takes. We will do whatever it takes until that sort of formation becomes the reality of this community and those who encounter it in the world. And here's all I want to say this afternoon. I know I've said a lot already. It's like the worst ending ever, right? Here's what I want to say after I've talked for 30 minutes. One, formation into Christ takes time. It takes a lifetime. Don't get in a hurry. You see, the language Paul uses of being like a mother in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in each member of the church, it's intentional language. You know, over the last uh, 10 months, I watched our daughter, Aniston, who's been interrupting me just for the last 10 minutes, girl, you're going to get it. I watched her be formed. And as beautiful as it was, it's not glamorous. I mean, just ask Kristen. It's not a glamorous thing. And not only is it not glamorous, it's terrifying. Everything new that happens, is that normal? Like, is that right? Should we be worried? Are you okay? Is she okay? Are we okay? Like Every moment, just the nine months of anxiety. And you get these, these brief glimpses of progress in the process. And then you're not even sure when you see them that they're actually progress at times. First you hear a heartbeat. And then a few months later, a picture that someone who went to school for a really long time tells you is a human being being formed. But like, I'd not fault you if you didn't believe it. <laughs> you're, like, you're just making that up. Like There's no way that's a person. There are moments in the process when you'd be excused for thinking that which, is being, that which is being formed is anything but a tiny person. But day in, day out, when you're aware of it, when you're not, when you forget it for a moment, when you're terrified of it, formation is happening in that process and something is being called into existence that has never before existed. And all of that is exactly what Paul means and I think exactly why he chooses this metaphor to talk about it. And I go, just for you, like just for your heart, when the transformation in your life into Christ's likeness seems slow, so does nine months. 
When you look in the mirror and the person looking back at you looks less like Jesus than you think they should, take a breath. Like, the road is not always up and to the right. It's not. When you're scared to death of what the process means, of the risks that it opens you up to, the places in your life where you were settled and comfortable and had a rhythm and know how to raise two kids, like, are suddenly upended. Remember what Paul says. He says, Christ himself is being formed in you. Information takes time. It is painful at times. It is a road full of doubt and second guessing. But when you get to hold the baby at the end of it, you are shocked. Like, I hold her and I'm like, how did you get here? Like, what, how did this happen? It doesn't make any sense, but you are beautiful because you look like your mom and not me. And I go, when Christ is formed in us and we're being stoned to death and what comes out is not, I hate you, I'm angry. What comes out is God forgive them. I'd imagine that's shocking too in the best sort of way. And second thing, the family of God, the church, is, I think, the only context in which that formation happens. And some of you may not agree with me, and that may be, I don't know, that might get retweeted. No, it won't. Nobody's listening. But, like, that may not be a popular take, right? Like, I believe that the family of God, the church, is the only context in which that formation happens. Just as a baby can only be formed in the body of its mother, Christians can only be formed by the Holy Spirit in the context of the church. Anderson was formed by the hand of God in her mother's body. I believe that. And now, Aniston will be formed by our family and by this family for the rest of her life. If you want to know why I like, think this thing is so important, that's why. Because my daughter will be formed by this family for the rest of her life. You see, Stephen found his life caught up in this thing called the church. From walking down the street in Jerusalem to being named a deacon and serving the widows of his community to preaching one of the most famous sermons in Christian history to being murdered at the hands of a lying mob, the church was the place in which Christ was formed in him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul, the one who oversaw the murder of this man, Stephen, finds his life caught up in the story of Jesus, accepted himself by a church formed in the image of this man, Jesus, to the degree that, the, that they accepted the man who'd arrested and killed their family members. Do you understand that? Paul becomes a missionary of the church that has accepted him after he's arrested and killed their family members. And I go, you want to know what formation into Christ likeness looks like? That's it. A group of people who says, like, I know what you've done. You're welcome. Come. We follow Jesus together. And he becomes one formed by the Holy Spirit in the context of this church to such a degree that he writes to the church and he says, I love you so much that I am like a mother who has given her very body to see something called into life that has never existed, who allows her body to be the context in which formation of new life happens. I love you that much. I'm willing to go through that for you. And I will persevere with you until that formation is born into the world for God's glory and the rescue of God's lost children. The church is the place that has your back when the formation gets hard. And if it hasn't been that, I'm sorry. And if we haven't been that, I'm sorry. We've got to do better, right? But the church should be the place that has your back when the formation gets difficult, when the transformation is costly, when the thing that you haven't been able to get over, like you begin to walk in and it gets really dark really quickly. The church 
has to be the body of Christ with you and for you in that moment. That's the vision that Jesus has given to us for it. When the road gets tough, when the results aren't what you think they should be, it's the community of those being transformed right along with you who know the cost you're paying and have a clear vision together of where we're headed, even though that vision gets a bit blurry for you at times and you forget or you want to give up. That's the picture of this thing. Not a group of people who gets together once a week, sings some songs, says some prayers, eats dinner together every now and then. Like, no, like, it is the community that is being transformed together into the likeness of Jesus for God's glory. And that's on the table for us as members of his body. That's the calling on City Collective. That's the calling on any and every expression of the church of Jesus. And may we take it seriously. And may we be for each other to that degree and in that way so that Christ himself may be formed in this community. I want to see that kind of transformation. I want to see it in your life. I want to see it in my life. I want to see it in my kids' life. And I believe that the only way to get there is a rugged commitment to showing up for life together in Jesus' church. I think it's the only way we get there. I do. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Jesus, I love you. I love this place, all these people. And I thank you for the example of the church, like historically, as a place where that transformation can happen. I pray that you give us the gift of great patience and love for one another as we journey together. That you would give us a vision of our lives caught up in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit together. That you would make us a place or the kind of formation that Stephen experienced, the kind of formation that Paul experienced, the kind of formation that they invite us by their lives to experience can happen. A rugged commitment to this thing together for your glory and our joy as we're transformed more and more into the likeness of your son. Jesus, we love you. We believe in you. We trust you. We invite you to, to have your way in this space and us and our lives and our, in our church family. As we pray, um, pray for courage, we pray for boldness. We thank you, Jesus, for your body that was broken, your blood that was shed. It creates a way for us to be transformed. It creates a, a path for us to walk into the full life, the abundant life that you promised. I pray for, uh, for our church family, Jesus, that you would give us the gift of seeing that come to fruition, that you would give us long-suffering patience and steadfast love for one another. I pray that you would give us the gift of seeing our brothers and sisters. I, I, I pray not like in Stephen's example at all, but to see our brothers and sisters in a moment of anxiety and chaos and panic all around them, that, they, that you would give us the, the, the gift of seeing us respond in the way of Jesus in those difficult moments. We would share them as a family. And when things get difficult, we would be able to, to rally around one another, to support one another, to walk together, knowing that you are forming Jesus, this church, that you are shaping us, that you are making us into your bride. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for your body broken, for your bloodshed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.